Welcome to the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I'm Graham Richmond, and this is your Wiretaps for Monday, April 10th, 2023. So this is going to be a special episode in that Alex is not with us, but we have a special guest um, who's going to help me out with the show. Today's episode is its also a bit of an experiment. So we're going to welcome a regular listener to the show, and his name is Will Keller, And he's a longtime listener who is heading off to business school this fall. And he has some advice to share, especially for those candidates applying to an MBA program from the military. With that said, I actually think a lot of the stuff that we're going to cover may be really relevant to the broader applicant pool as well. So what I wanted to do is first just tell everyone here a little bit about Will, and then we'll bring Will on, and and I've got a handful of questions for him. And and so, again, this is kind of a fun experiment that we're trying this week. So Will um, is a Marine Corps officer with eight years of service, and he's currently transitioning to the civilian sector and looking to get into consulting. He's also deciding between offers to join executive MBA programs at Wharton and Darden. So he hasn't yet decided, um, but he's been through the journey of applying, which is often, some say, the hardest part. Um, But welcome, Will, to the show. Can you hear me? Yes. (laughs) I can. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan, like you said, and uh, it's really cool that we get to do this. So thanks. Yeah, no, and and Will, you were telling me before we came on here that um, you've had a chance to listen to the majority, if not all, of the episodes we've run. So um, you probably deserve a, another medal <laughs> for that, um, you know. But but I did want to um, have you first. I mean, I, I gave a kind of a brief intro here, but I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about your personal journey, like you know, where are you from, where did you go to undergrad, and and you know, why'd you join the military, and and why business school? Some of these basic things that we could kind of run through to get us started here. Sure, sounds good. So I'm originally from New Hampshire, grew up in a small town up there. Uh, I went to Cornell for undergrad, studied business there, actually. Okay. I joined the military because it was something I really felt called to do. I just had a desire to serve. And I also had two very important men in my family, both my grandfathers, or I were in the Army, actually. One was in the Special Forces, uh, and the other spent time in Korea. So I really looked up to them, and I knew that that was a path I kind of wanted to follow in life, at least initially. And uh, now I'm at the point where I've served for eight years, like you said. I've decided to pursue the um, executive MBA route. And as you said, yeah, I was fortunate enough to have been accepted to both Darden and Warden's uh, formats. And eventually I would like to get into management consulting, either in like the defense sector, since that's kind of my initial background, um, or manufacturing operations, something along those lines. Got it. So one of the things I think that, you know, we talk, obviously, over the course of the various wiretaps episodes that we've produced, we have profiled a lot of military candidates. And, and one of the things that we don't touch upon enough, I think, is why someone in the military might think about an MBA. I mean, we often get into the nitty gritty first about, you know, just sort of like, are they going to get in and what, what should the strategy be? But from your view, like what, what makes you think an MBA is the right path? So the value proposition for a veteran or someone who's about to transition to the civilian sector is, in my opinion... I know this opinion is shared by a lot of people who have, are further along this path than me and out in, out in the civilian world now. It's probably the best transition tool that we have to the civilian sector. You know, the, the, the GI Bill all, also makes the ROI even greater and the opportunity cost for attending a program lower because I know that, you know, the, the cost of these programs is something that, the sticker price, let's say, is something that can really be shocking to people. Yeah. Uh, but use those education benefits that you earned you know, and if, if the goal is you're transitioning careers, because by definition, you're making a career pivot, getting out of the military, you're doing something different. So why not go to the place where career pivots are not only accepted, but 100% supported, and it's probably 
the norm. It's probably what majority of students do, even if they're not coming from the military. So it's, it kind of lines up with exactly what the military transition is. Yeah. Um, you know, and then going back to the job bill piece, you know, the military is probably one of the, the greatest American institutions for driving upward social mobility. So use those benefits that you earned, you know, go back to school. Um, and then, you know, from there, the, the, the sky's the limit because you just, you are so set up for success compared to your peers that get out and do not go to uh, MBA programs or some sort of, some form of higher education, let's say, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. And I think, you know, one of the things that Alex and I, in looking at military candidates and, you know, both of us sat on the admissions committee at Wharton and we had our opinions, but I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about what I would, I guess what I would call a kind of hierarchy of military candidate types, you know, because over the years we've seen a lot of candidates who are, you know, they go to one of the, um, what are they called? The kind of, you know, military academies versus people who are just kind of enlisted and and rise up. And so, you know, we, we have our kind of views about that, but I wondered like if you could sort of walk us through, like, is there a hierarchy and, and even like within the military, you know, sometimes we see people posting on our site who are like, uh, you know, Navy SEALs or Mm -hmm. or army Rangers or, you know, the things that we think are pretty high level, right? Uh-huh. Um, but I'm just curious, like, what do you, for you, like, what's the various, like, you know, levels out there? So it's it's not that dissimilar from uh, a civilian applicant who applies to business school, right? In, in my opinion, you know, everyone has a unique story to tell. Mm-hmm. In general, I think to differentiate people, especially from the military, it comes down to two things. And that's number one, leadership experience. That's, you know, no surprise there, right? Right. And number two is I would say the quality of your story and or your storytelling, like your ability to tell your narrative, Right. So like you said, on the one end, you'll have guys that are doing something that let's say you, you cannot get that experience outside of the military. And that's what makes them so unique right off the bat. We're talking special operations, uh, yeah. Navy SEALs, Green Berets, special forces guys. And then on the other hand, you can have a, um, you know, a service member who's doing a job that essentially exists just the same in civilian world, you know, mechanics, maintainers, logistics, supply, medical, dental, Sure, all very important, but the uniqueness of the experience doesn't necessarily stand out right off the bat because it's a job that, you know, you could find out in the civilian world. But, you know, that being said, there's plenty of like Navy SEALs who are not good fits for MBAs or couldn't, you know, put together a good application, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't tell their story. Yeah. And by the opposite, you know, on the other hand, there's also plenty of mechanics that have had really interesting life experiences and stories and can put together great application. What I found for better or worse, and I've talked to a couple people at some top programs that uh, are from different branches and different, you know, specialties within those branches, is I, I, I think adcoms have a tendency to kind of look at special operations guys and then Marines and kind of lump them into the same category, like kind of one big group. Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of like, a, oh, there's an everyone else, like military category. Yeah. You know, again, that's just kind of my, my opinion. That's kind of how um, I perceive it to be. I would say if we're talking about leadership experience, officers, especially junior officers, tend to have more experience than junior enlisted because as soon as we join a unit, as soon as we're out of our basic training pipeline, you're you're a leader. Right. You know? There's no there's no there's a very steep learning curve and there's there's no like gentle on ramp for that. Um, on the enlisted side, you know, you'll start out at the bottom and within two or three years, usually by the end of your fourth year, you know, you, you do have some leadership experience, um, but it's just not right away. And, you know, if you're, again, if you're an officer, you have a couple of years kind of uh, ahead of that person and you're leading larger groups from an earlier, from an earlier stage. Sure. Um, you know, so special operations um, guys and combat arms guys, I'm talking like infantry, tanks, artillery, and again, particularly officers tend to have greater leadership responsibility and also tend to have more unique experiences. Then they have like maybe the roles that directly support 
combat arms or special operations guys, talking like logistics, communications, intelligence guys. And in general, the further away you get from those like military-only type of jobs, the less unique the experience that you have to pull from. Let's say like the less options for stories or narratives you have to tell. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know you don't have a good story to tell. If I if I could tell um, missions committees how to prioritize applicants, I would say you know again it's not that different from the civilian world. You just have to look beyond the job title. That job title is a starting point. You have to look at the actual experiences and how they tell their story, just like a regular applicant. Yeah. You know, every unit in the military needs good leaders, and every service member has a really interesting personal narrative if you can just, you know, tease it out of, you know, your experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think, you know, one of the things that I presume was helpful for you was in, in kind of, you know, learning about this space. Like, how do you, you know, how do you learn about MBA admissions? You know, here you are in the military. Um you know, it's not like when you're when you're off somewhere, um, the schools are coming to to visit with you or something the way they do. You know, they'll go to McKinsey or something and talk to uh, analysts or something, uh-huh. right? So, how you know, I, I kind of wondered if you had any advice about how military candidates can connect with schools and conduct due diligence. Like, are there any avenues? I mean, we sometimes talk on the show about connecting with the veterans clubs and things like that. Was that an avenue that you recommend and that you pursued? Absolutely. 100%. Uh, That's the first thing I was going to say. Veterans club is your best resource. I had it underlined and written written in bold on my notes for this because (laughs) uh, they definitely do not overlook that. Um, You know, and it's also kind of a small world. It's, It's a small military. I think you're never more than like three degrees away from separation from anybody. You can easily find someone at your target school or in your target industry who's willing to talk to you. And, you know, and all else fails, you just, just do a Google search. Find the Veterans Club. Reach out. Nobody loves helping transitioning military more than veterans who like just did it or just did it five or ten years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Every single person I've spoken to, you know, whether Marine Corps or a different service, whether in or out of business school, just anyone who's made the transition, even if they didn't go to business school, has been like the world's most helpful person um, to me. So I'm super grateful to everybody who's helped me along this path. You know, and it is such a well-worn path now. Uh, we, were jo- we were joking a little bit earlier that like, you know, there's almost like a, uh, an expectation as a junior officer, hey, are you gonna go get your MBA? Because right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's becoming very popular, but it's popular for a reason, because it works, right? Yeah. So, you know, you, you, chances are you have somebody you know or you know somebody who knows somebody who's gone to your target school or your dream school or is working in the industry you want to get into because, you know, military veterans are, are hot right now, um, yeah. which is a good thing. Yeah, agreed. I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask, and this is maybe it's similar and, and related, and it could be that the veterans clubs you connected with helped in this regard. But I always feel like, and this applies to non-traditional candidates too, but if you're working in an industry or in the military that's like not so connected directly to the MBA or to MBA type careers, I feel like you know you you could be at a disadvantage when it comes time to explaining your career goals and like really understanding like it's not like you're you know working at a consulting firm where you look to your right you look to your left and like there are people who have their MBAs and have already um, come back and are and you know exactly what the steps are. Um, so how did you go about thinking about the career goals portion of the admissions process? Because it you know it, you have to sort of envision this transition to civilian life and everything. So I'm curious about that. Absolutely. It can definitely be tough to kind of see yourself five, ten years down the road because, you know, if this is the only job you've ever known, uh, it can be different to envision something totally different. Like you said, you don't have the advantage of being able to look to your left and your right and, and seeing somebody who has an MBA working directly alongside you. But again, that networking is, is huge, you know, and networking not to 
necessarily like, you know, gain an, an in somewhere, but to be like, hey, really tell me about your experience, gain knowledge. I, I need mm-hmm. some insight on like, what do you do? Oh, you're a management consultant. What do you do on a daily basis? Like, what is your day to day like? Because that's how you're going to really find out like, oh, I can actually see myself, you know, doing this goal. And I actually had a uh, interview once uh, or a phone, a phone call with um, someone who kind of stopped me right at the beginning and they were like, what do you want to be doing when you're 50 years old? Like, where do you see yourself that old? And I had never actually thought like that far ahead before. And I just stopped and I was like, let me take like 30 to, seconds to a minute to think about this. Um, so just doing little exercises like that can be really helpful. But, you know, while you're talking to somebody who kind of has also gone that, gone that path themselves, kind of made that journey as well. You know, and a lot of military guys gravitate, I think, primarily towards consulting uh, and entrepreneurship, I'd say, are the big two. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I think, you know, again, it's, it's a good thing, but there is kind of a, uh, a stereotype that, you know, all the military is, you know, natural problem solvers and uh, we're comfortable going into situations where we don't know what we don't know or we don't understand exactly the situation and we have to just kind of figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, not, not too dissimilar from consulting or, or starting a firm. Right. Um, and the other thing I tell people too, you know, is don't, don't really overthink it. Like some really good deep thinking is good, but eventually you get to a point where it's like, uh, we call it get to the 90% solution. No one's going to dig up your application in 10 years and, and, and fact check you like, oh, you said you were going to do consulting. You're actually doing this. You know, it's like you can have a pretty good idea and realize you're not, you know, 100% married to it. Once you get to business school, it, it could change and that's perfectly fine. That's kind of what this journey is about. It's about finding what you want to do. Yeah. You know, what you want what you want to do next. Yeah, agreed. So. I know um we talk a lot about how, you know, the the mere act of coming up with a proposed set of goals is a useful exercise and it allows you to then um refine those goals or even, you know, pivot as needed when you get to business school. But but mapping out a path is a useful exercise. I guess one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about as well is there are challenges that military applicants face due to their the nature of their work in the sense that they're often, you know, um put in, you know, overseas or, you know, they're off doing various operations and and things. And so I wondered about, you know, access to things like the GMAT or the GRE. I mean, you know, some, some people that we've profiled on the show have been, you know, often places like Afghanistan or, you know, far flung corners of the the world Mm -hmm. where they don't necessarily have access to even, you know, good internet, let alone, you know, taking one of these tests. So do you have any advice to candidates in that regard? Because I know often we'll say like, oh, just go retake the test or something, but we don't necessarily understand how these kind of deployments work. Sure. So I think that, you know, if you are deployed to a combat zone, then obviously, yes, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah. If you're stateside, though, no matter how remote you are, I think it's a lot less difficult than it used to be. You know, I, not, I was never really stationed in a, like a super remote area, mm-hmm. uh, not for long periods of time anyway, but access to testing facilities is definitely less of an issue. Um, it's there, you know, testing centers are pretty ubiquitous now. There's also the at-home test. I know so I had some buddies who did the, did, did that for the GRE. Um, wouldn't recommend it cause I, I think they make it harder, but, uh, you know, who knows? We'll never be able to prove that. <laughs> you know, I also think if you're like, Hey, I'm an hour or two away from a testing center, you know, that if you're serious about going to business school, you know, you, you, you're like, I got to make this drive because I'm, you know, I'm, I want to commit to this, this transition. You know, and I think we'll we'll talk about it later on about kind of how to navigate like different command situations. But you know, I've had some commands that just say, "Hey, t- take the day and go take that test," because what you're going to do next may be more important than, than you know what we're doing this week at work. Right. And if that doesn't happen, you know, take a vacation day, take take a day of leave because that that should be your priority. So the the bottom line is, if you know, if you want to make it happen, you will find a way to make it happen. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I think also just recognizing that. 
um, yeah, that, hey, you know, we're busy, but it's not like iBanking, right? Like there are people in, that have jobs that demand a lot more hours than us on a regular basis that also find ways to put together an application and, to, and take the test, right? So it, it can be done. Um, I also want to point out that there's, there's some kind of, kind of lesser known financial resources that will actually cover the cost of some of these tests. Uh, I don't know if they're still doing it, but I took the jury like two years ago now or a year and a half ago, and it was reimbursed by this group called the Defense Activity for Non-Traditional Education Support, D-A-N-T-E-S. Okay. So they actually cover, I had to take it twice, but they covered the cost of one of the tests. I just showed them my score, showed them my, you know, my order confirmation, my receipt for how much I paid for it. And within like a month, I got that money back in my account. So wow. there's more, res- there's tons of resources out there for veterans and there, and there's almost so many that it's almost like white noise and some of them kind of get lost in the shuffle. So I think that's just worth pointing out there. Okay. Um, if we're talking about test taking specifically, that's a good resource. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I guess another thing that I wanted to ask you about, and, and this is a little challenging because it's, you know, gets into stereotypes. Stereotypes, right? But we know, you know, we talk a lot about military candidates being noted for their incredible leadership experiences and, and teamwork and, and, and in some cases like international exposure. So lots of like positives, but there are also sometimes are these like stereotypes about, oh, military folks are very rigid and hierarchical because of the nature of their <laughs> organizations. And, and so I wondered, like, do you have any tips for candidates who are looking to like overcome that kind of a stereotype? Absolutely. So that, that one is always interesting to me because you you know I definitely know some people that kind of fit that description but by and large in my experience the people I've you know served with have been some of the most like creative interesting people that I've ever met um so it's always interesting to me when people are like oh yeah marines like they fit this one type and, and whatever right. sure they're out there but <laughs> yeah. for them for the most part it you know it demands a lot more like creative thinking and problem solving than than you think and so it demands a lot of different like personality types and it's definitely not like that um on a, you know, for, for most people that, that I've known in the service, you know, and you also have to be yourself in the military, right? Right. Like there's even, even in an environment where you would think like it would play to someone's strengths to be like that, you know, most of the time it doesn't because it's, it's, a, it's a people business at the end of the day. And so you still have to come across as, as a real person, you know, being yourself, mm-hmm. um, being able to let your passion show, you know, making jokes like, that's all part of the culture, um, and that's also how you better connect with the people that you lead or the people that you know work alongside you. And if you're really, really wrapped up about it, you know, because we have this thing called you know military bearing, where you, you kind of come across very stoic. Uh, and I've been told that I've been told I come across stoic in interviews, which is not a bad thing, but mm-hmm. um, I call it the twenty percent rule. You know, do what you would normally do in front of a formation with bearing and stuff, and take like twenty percent off. Right. And for some reason, that like little. <laughs> prompt kind of just helps people be like, okay, I can let loose just a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you can be stoic and also be emotionally intelligent and, you know, empathetic and have a personality and, and all that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And I, I think, you know, it sounds to me like what I'm hearing from you and I'm not surprised by this is that that stereotypes may be a little unfair. And as an, a former admissions officer, like I think we, you know, we sometimes do have these tendencies to think of different um, groups of the applicant pools having certain characteristics when obviously once you get in and read the files, you realize that, you know, every candidate is is unique and, and has their story to tell and, and their own personality. One thing though that I will <laughs> admit to um, is that, you know, military applicants 
sometimes use a lot of jargon and acronyms. Um, you see it in the resume or even in the application materials. I mean, some candidates are better than others at stepping out from that and recognizing that, oh, wait, you know, I'm, this is like I'm now dealing with a civilian universe. But I wondered if you'd comment on this, like how does someone go about translating their military experience? And again, I think this applies to people in any field where there's a lot of jargon or kind of acronyms or things that they deal with every day, but that the average person doesn't. Mm -hmm. So any tips on that? Sure. So the theme is reach out to somebody who's done it. Talk to the Veterans Club. You know, have a have a B school veteran look at your resume and provide feedback. Like, okay, man, I know what you're trying to say there. Mm -hmm. You need to say this because otherwise, <laughs> the missions committee is going to be like, you know, question mark. Right. Um, my rule of thumb has been I keep my job title the same because some people are like want to change everything and they're like, oh, I was a supervisor, I was this, then like, well. They're not expecting you to have that job title because they know you're in the military. So just say like I was a commander or I was a operations officer or whatever. So leave the job title the same. Yeah. In the bullet points, you can you can explain kind of what that job title is and then explain your duties and then just totally drop the jargon completely in the bullet points. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I have like a middle ground there of still being like, okay, he cleared his time in the military. Okay, now he's explaining like what this job actually was and it, it's it's not confusing and there's not a lot of acronyms. You know, for example, I could say. Uh, I commanded three, you know, uh, non-commissioned officers, NCOs, and 20 lance corporals in an anti-terrorism security unit. You know, change that to, I, I supervised 20 junior level Marines and three direct reports in a, in a specialized team that focused on, you know, a diplomatic security mission. Right. <laughs> so you see, I'm saying the same thing, but I'm yeah. kind of translating it into something that is at least, you know, a little bit easier to understand. It's, it's probably still too much, but we're, we're in the right direction. Um, and for me, I've also kind of always been fortunate where I've had parents and other family members who, who really haven't served. So I'm always like having to explain to them or to my friends, you know, what I actually do on a daily basis. So that helps too. So, you know, worst case, you can always just bounce it off of somebody who's not in the military and be like, if you were reading this resume, do you kind of get what I do or are you just lost an acronym? So that, that's always a good, you know, litmus test too. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I think one thing that I've always told military candidates is, you know, imagine that you're describing what you do to like your, you know, uh, 12th grade English teacher, right. you know, so someone who's smart, you know, they're a teacher, they're smart, they're, you know, but they don't necessarily know your field, but they need to understand what you're doing. And I thought that sentence you gave as an example is terrific. I mean, that's a great way to describe the exact same thing, but in a way that way more people understand. So very useful. Um, one question I had for you is, you know, and again, this may apply to non-traditional candidates as well from other sectors, but you, you know, we talked about how military candidates sometimes have gaps in, you know, finance, analytics, Excel, like some of the stuff that there's a portion of the applicant pool that's very much up to speed on. And so any advice on how to get up to speed on that stuff as you prepare to kind of go to business school? It's definitely easy to be intimidated by Excel. Uh, I, I love looking at memes that bankers put out where it's like, oh, this guy's using his cursor in Excel and I'm over here like, there's an option to not do that, right? <laughs> so, yeah. um, but I, you know, the, the nice thing about Excel is you, you can kind of Google anything and, and learn it. Sure. Um, you know, there's so much knowledge out there on the internet, uh, Excel for dummies, but specifically like for business schools, you know, I've had a lot of people take um, HBS core, uh, the UCLA extension, Mass Solutions for Business course is also one that I know is recommended by a lot of admissions consulting yeah. uh, firms. So I would say those are like useful for helping overcome you know, if you have like a, a less than stellar quant grade on your transcript from undergrad, I know that those are recommended courses to take to kind of help overcome that. So that's kind of on the, you know, I'm applying side. As far as, let's say you got the acceptance and now you're worried about trying to, you know, 
sink or swim while you're at a program. I know, for example, a lot of, a lot of schools will offer like a math prep course. Uh, Warden, for example, I, I, know, I know is one of them, which are, are free, you know, uh, may or may not be graded, but they just basically exist to help you improve your, your, your quant skills before you arrive on campus. So, right, right. so the bottom line is there's tons of resources out there. You just have to know where to look and you just have to commit yourself to a little bit of, you know, online learning or, or self-study. Yeah. And I think, you know, we actually did a show not too long ago where I connected with um, the woman who runs the new kind of business fundamentals program that's, that's offered by GMAC, which same idea, get you up to speed on all this stuff that, you know, you may not have had a lot of exposure to. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And like you said, HBS core, I mean, there are a lot of options out there and I think it's, you know, as, and I, I love the fact that they tend to have these, you know, kind of joint purposes, right. Of like not only getting you ready for business school, but in some cases like bolstering your chances of getting in, in the first place, right. By doing some transcript repair yes. or, or whatever you want to call it. So, um, yeah, that, that's a good, um, good path for many to take. I did want to ask you, um, a question about, recommendation letters or, or even just the idea of like going off to the, you know, to business school for the military. And I wondered, you know, you know, we often worry like in the civilian sector about like, oh, how do I ask my boss for, <laughs> for a letter? Um, and in your case, you know, I'm just wondering like, how can one get the support or buy-in from the chain of command when you decide to leave the military? And what happens? Like, are there instances where people don't, you know, want to support you in that sort of <laughs> venture? Like what, what was your experience there and any advice you have? Sure. So, uh, experiences definitely vary when it comes to that. I, I've always been really fortunate. I've had, I've worked for some absolutely amazing leaders, uh, in the military and pretty much all of them have been really supportive of, you know, my goals within and without the military. Some of them will, you know, be lenient, let you take time off to go take that test or conduct an interview, um, you know, and, and some won't. It's, it's unfortunate if you have a culture in your command that doesn't support your next career move, but there's ways of overcoming it, you know. But by the time you have done your four years, you've probably worked for at least a couple different leaders, you know, so you have to hope at least one of them is going gonna, is gonna to be able to write you a recommendation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, failing that, there's also leaders at different levels, too. Like, I, I have known people that have asked, like, their battalion commander uh, or their group commander for a letter of recommendation. And not necessarily because their immediate superior didn't want to, but just because they wanted a different, ha- have a different perspective on kind of, you know, their, their day-to-day and their interactions. Um, you know, when, and when it comes to dealing with commands that really are, you know, opposed to you, to you doing that, first of all, it shouldn't happen, but it does. You know, I just have frank conversations with leadership about how, you know, hey, maybe I can work on some other projects or pick up the slack in other ways, you know, and, and the other thing too to remember is at least in the Marine Corps, we have a pretty good culture of, hey, we, we need people to actually leave the service because we want them to be good ambassadors when they get out and get younger people interested in joining the service and say, hey, this guy did it. You know, he didn't do it for a career, but he did it for four years and now he's doing this thing, which is awesome. So I want to join the Marine Corps now out of, you know, high school or college or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one way to really, you know, set your your command at ease too is, or at least what I've what I've always tried to focus on is really making sure it comes across that you are going to take care of your primary responsibilities and particularly the people that you lead first. You know, there's definitely some projects or some uh, exercises or what have you that the command is going to want you to do that are you know, not, not maybe a priority or shouldn't be a priority, but mm-hmm. whenever it comes to taking care of people or praying for a deployment or something like that, you know, just be clear that like that is going to be your priority. I've always said like, I- I'm going to do this hundred percent and until I don't. Right. Um, and that usually is at least a way to kind of like open up that conversation a little bit because, you know, in the, in the absence of, 
you know, any feedback from you, if your commander or somebody finds out, you know, not from you that, oh, hey, this guy is, is trying to leave, he's getting out, you know, then all kinds of things could go through their brain. You just need to be upfront and be like, hey, I don't want to do this forever. This is my next move. This is what I want to do to get there until, until, you know, I do get there or until we're done with this deployment or whatever the next milestone is, you know, I'm a hundred percent in this, but I also need to start kind of preparing for, for this next thing. And I just wanted to make you aware of that. I hope you write me a letter of recommendation. And for the most part, at least in my experience, I've been really lucky that I've had nothing but, you know, positive response from that, okay. that approach. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think, you know, again, a lot of what you're saying to me feels, you know, applicable in other sectors too. I mean, I think in, in many cases, this is a huge worry for people about, you know, getting that support from their boss and, and so on. So, but I think you make a great point about, you know, not everyone stays in the military for life and those who leave are great ambassadors. And, and so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I did want to ask, so you are going off to pursue an EMBA and I wondered, you know, if, you know, because you have these options, right? You're going to leave, you know, the military and you, you could have gone full time potentially, but you have a lot of experience, you know, in the military. And so I was curious, like what, how did you kind of figure out that the sort of EMBA was the right formula for you? So, uh, it was a kind of a, a couple of things that, uh, factored together to kind of, kind of make that decision. Um, number one was, uh, where we chose to live, um, and not, not being, not having to commit your family to a relocation for two years and then potentially move back somewhere else. So it was, it was kind of my personal and like family situation, mm-hmm. uh, made the EMBA kind of the best, the best option for me. Yeah. You touched on the experience level a little bit. You know, I, I think eight to 10 years is right at that level where you could go either way. You could go to full time or you could go to, um, an executive MBA, you know, and one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it is not not self-selecting out of an MBA or an EMBA because I think that mm-hmm. happened to me initially. Yeah, you know, all of the things being equal for most military applicants getting out, the full-time route I will say is definitely still the way to go mm-hmm. because of that formal recruiting process, and also personally because I'm I'm biased and I think just being 100% immersed in you know a campus with a lot of really smart, driven people is 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 better than only doing it part-time. You know, I just think high, that higher education environment is so cool. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not everyone's situation is the same. And like I said, for me, the EMBA route made more sense uh, for me and my family and where we wanted to be located. Right. Uh, I didn't know much about these types of formats, uh, part-time or uh, EMBA, when I first started the process. Uh, and I want to I say I'm particularly grateful to the team at Darden for kind of walking me through the differences and opportunities for veterans um, and how it works with GI Bill benefits, because that seems to be the biggest misnomer. A lot of guys are like, yeah, and it would be cool, but, you know, you're not a full-time student, so you're not going to get as much money. Uh, and depending on the program and how they how they count their hours or, or talk with the, how they interact with the VA, that's, that's not true. Um, okay. It's actually considered a full-time program at most places, which kind of blew me away. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then I was fortunate enough to get linked up with, um, you know, my first job out of the military um, through through a buddy who had done it before me. So for me, again, it, it made sense to be able to, to pursue this degree while also still being able to work um, full time and get the same the same amount of benefits. You know, and both both the schools that I, I applied to, both Warden Wharton and Darden, said, you know, I, yes, you have the minimum experience. Uh, yes, you're planning to work during the program. And which is basically the, the boxes that you have to check and realizing that, you know, I don't actually need to be at the, in the C-suite um, or at a higher level in the civilian sector to be able to attend these programs. Um, I think also how, having an undergraduate business degree helps too. 
Um, I had a buddy that mentioned that to me. I, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's like a, you know, a deal breaker, mm-hmm. but I do think he makes a good point that hey, you already have the basic background in business. So I think learning it in the EMBA format is going to be maybe a little bit easier for you than somebody who, you know, is, is starting from zero and had like a history degree and doesn't have business, business experience or, or whatnot. Yeah. And then just recognizing that your military experience, you know, as a leader, it's, it is management experience and it does qualify you for those types of programs. So don't, don't self-select out, you know, let, let, let them determine if, if, if you'd be a better candidate for the full time or, or whatnot. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it sounds like you're in a, um, a good position in that, yeah, you had that business background as an undergrad. Um, you're, you've kind of already transitioned out and are, you know, kind of have some work that you're doing so you can do it part time. And yeah, but I, I agree. It's kind of, it sounds like it's a really personal decision and, and that, you know, people owe it to themselves to look at into all these options. Uh, before we kind of wrap up here, I wanted to ask you one more question. It's kind of a general question. Is there any kind of other advice that you have for military candidates as they approach the MBA admissions process? Uh, take that leap, man. Like, <laughs> just like joining the military, take the leap of faith. Leaving the military can be just as intimidating as joining, but there's a tons of resources like we talked about throughout this episode. There's tons of resources out there to help you succeed. And, and there's literally thousands or millions of veterans who have gone before you and have been successful. You know, it's it can be done. You're going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, and don't overlook, don't overlook the part-time and exec programs. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of focus on full-time programs, and and rightfully so. I still think you have a huge advantage having a formal recruiting process, being immersed on campus. It's also a nice break, you know, from <laughs> military life to to be able to go back to school for two years. And, and I'm jealous that some of my peers should get to do that. Um, but the exec format turned out to be the best fit for, you know, me and my situation. And I'm really looking forward to it. You can still earn a great degree from a top school and have access to a lot of the same resources of that institution without, you know, committing your family to moving around for two or three years and then moving somewhere else. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, and then I'll also say if, if anyone failing anything, if anyone wants to chat about anything that we mentioned or bounce ideas off of me, I'm always open to having conversations with, you know, military applicants looking to make the transition. Yeah. And people can always reach out to the show by writing to info at clearedmit.com. We can put you in touch with Will if you want to connect with him. Will, I did want to congratulate you on getting into both Wharton and Darden. I mean, those, they both offer really great, um, AMBA programs and, you know, in different kind of formats and stuff. And I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you where you're ultimately going to go, but when you <laughs> decide, you should let us know and we'll, we'll mention it on a future show so that people can know what you ultimately decide. Cause okay, I, I know sure. you're kind of mulling this over and it's a nice uh, problem to have obviously to be, you know, torn between <laughs> two excellent offerings. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate you making time today to, to talk about all this. I think it's going to be super helpful for those um, heading off to business school and thinking, or, you know, kind of thinking about this journey and particularly from the military, obviously, since that's what really what we covered, but I feel like there are a lot of lessons here applicable beyond that. So thanks so much for making time. Absolutely, Graham. Yeah, thank you guys. This has been awesome. So that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Clear Admit MBA Admissions Podcast. I want to thank Will again for joining us and uh, and for emailing us to kind of make this all happen. And I also um, wanted to uh, remind our producer, Dennis, to have a great vacation. He's actually out this week on vacation, and I'm hoping that he's not listening to this show while he's away. Um, but we'll see you all next week with another episode of Wiretaps. <laughs>